Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? Good. Would you put your hands together and welcome our Lexington campus this morning? We love you guys over Lexington. Uh, we're so glad to have you. We love our Shelby campus. And those of you joining us online, thank you for joining us. Maybe family at home sick or traveling, we love having you. Thank you for being with us. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. You don't have a Bible. There is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 978, uh, whatever campus you're at, we have those Bibles available. And as always, if you're here, you just happen to pop in or maybe someone invited you. You don't have a Bible in your home. We're going to walk right through a text this morning. We're not trying to give man opinion. We want to see what God has spoken about himself, and so we want to make sure that you have a copy of God's word as we dive in, and so take that with you if you don't. What a great time here together this morning, remembering what Christ has done for us, reflecting in the truth of his cross and resurrection, and then celebrating. And I really believe that's what eternity is going to be like. It's going to be reflecting, remembering, but also celebrating all that God is and all that he has done for us. And so what a great morning to be able to do that together. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5 together this morning. As you turn there, we have kicked off a series that we've called Family Portrait. What does it mean to be a part of the family of God? What does it look like to be a part of God's family as the church? And what does it look like to reflect him in our families, in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting? How do we reflect this, this picture of family that God is painting for the universe. And so we've been talking about family portrait. Now let me ask you this this morning. How many of you have ever taken a portrait that failed? Like it was a picture that didn't come across the way you expected. Anybody like that? You have a picture and it just so happened that picture was taken and your eyes were closed. Or you took that picture and the dog or cat ran through right as you were taking it. Or you took that picture and your kid got sick as the picture was being taken. Or the child begins to cry, or just something doesn't happen. Or, or maybe for you, it was a video. I, I've shared with you before, I have a, a home video of our wedding, and uh, we had a friend of ours uh, do our videography for our wedding. Now we go back to 1997, we have this on like a VHS tape, so uh, that just shows how old I am, even... 41 is, seems young, but it's really old. We have VHS tapes, and, and so we'll pop that in every once in a while to watch it, and it's hilarious, because two hours of our wedding video is the videographer taping the ground. He, he didn't realize that the video camera was on, and he's going around having conversations, not quite in the bathroom, but conversations that we're able to hear as he's taping the ground, and so we don't watch all two hours of that, but we certainly make fun of it, and we look back and laugh about that moment. Or how about this? Maybe you heard of this at the end of 2018. There was a couple named Dave and Pam Zaring who hired a photographer to take family portraits. And they paid the photographer $200. It was an amateur photographer, but one that had done some photos before. And they paid a young lady to come take their family portraits. And a few weeks later, they got back those portraits, and it actually made national headlines. You remember USA Today? Even the Today Show showed these pictures, and it became like a, a meme all over the place. It was this photo of their family. This is the photo they got back. I don't remember this. This is at the end of 2018, and it, it went all over the place. If you look it up, it's all over the news. Uh, it was on the Today Show. It was in USA Today. It was, I mean, just all over the place. By the way, this family is actually a, 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 the daughter of Greg and Darlene Rudrick. Darlene 
uh, runs our missions department here, and, uh, and this is actually their daughter. I didn't know that, and as we put this all together, I re- realized that truth. So there's a connection to Crossroads of this family, but this became a viral sensation. And uh, they were really generous and gracious about it, but what, what the photographer did is they took the pictures home, and they decided to Photoshop to smooth out their face and made them look like Lego heads. Can you imagine getting these back as your family portraits, uh, hanging these on the wall? And again, they were a great sport about that. Now think about this for a moment. What picture are we painting of God? What portrait are we demonstrating of what God has done and who he is in our lives? I probably don't have to convince you here this morning that the portrait of the family is being photoshopped by our culture. I probably don't have to convince you that the moral and political landscape of our our country is such that the foundations of our homes are eroding rapidly. I probably don't have to convince you or persuade you that we are watching right before our eyes the death of the basic unit of civilization that we call marriage and family. It's happening right before our eyes. Statistics would prove this, by the way. The leading marriage indicators in our culture today, these empirical descriptions of what marriage looks like in the health and vibrancy of marriage in our culture proves that marriage and family are being destroyed. For example, I don't know if you know this or not, but over half of all marriages now end in divorce. This is four times the rate that it was back in the 1960s and 70s. Now, I don't say that as someone from the 60s and 70s. I was born in the late 70s. But I say that in, in, in a, the rapidness, the, the quickness of the change has happened. It's only been just a few years, and we see this rapid decline. Over half of all marriages end in divorce. This has grown into widespread weariness and pessimism about marriages, about what marriage is about. And so this this has created a reaction, especially by young people, that come with two options. If you're in your 20s and 30s, you live in a world that is now reacted to that truth that marriage isn't working. And so there are two options. There are some that will now live together, that will, as some say, shack up together to try to practice marriage to see if it actually is going to work. By the way, very interesting statistic that just came out this year. Today, more than half of all adults in the U.S. live together before they get married. Over half of all adults in the U.S. Put that in perspective. Many couples say, you know what, let's check this out. Let's see if this is really going to work. Let's just live together. Now, can I tell you, statistically speaking, this doesn't actually solve the problem. In fact, what this proves to us is those who live together that eventually get married actually are far greater of a risk to get divorced later in life. So the idea of living together actually doesn't solve the issue of marriage. The other option that we find in our culture today is not just living together. There is now a growing trend, a, a wave of, of ideology that's coming about that says, instead of getting married at all, I just don't need marriage. A recent study found that 40% of Americans actually believe that marriage is absolutely obsolete. You don't need it. You don't need to be married. That marriage is a social artifact that's past expiration date. I don't need it. It's not a part of life. The picture of marriage, the picture of the home, has been broken. 
the picture of painting what God intended is being photoshopped by our culture. Now, before I go any further, I want to pause. I know there are many of you here, there are many of you listening or watching, and you're single. And it would be easy right at this moment to tune out, to say, well, this is going to be about marriage, this is going to be about the home, I'm going to tune out, this isn't really relating to me. I want to challenge you for a moment, hear me. If you are single, listen to this. I have found out and I've realized, I've worked with singles, worked with young adults, and I've realized this in kind of my studies. Here's what I've learned. Is the way you as a single person view and value marriage would have determined the way you live your life. The way you value marriage today will be the way you value your life today. The way you view marriage in this season will be the way you live your life in the next season. And so singles, this should be a moment that your ears peak up. This should be a moment that you pay attention as we look at what God's word says about the picture of marriage. What is marriage really all about and what picture should we be painting? And there is a great correlation to how you view marriage as to how you live your life. And so we're going to look at this together. Ephesians chapter 5 is a well-known passage. By the way, if you have been at any weddings that are Christian weddings, you probably have heard this passage spoken of. And so I want to take a moment to look at this together. Paul is writing here, and he's talking about what does it look like to be a life, a Christian, filled with the Spirit. And so he says these words, chapter 5, verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now we get to the end of this passage, and I want you to notice that Paul makes this grand statement in chapter thir- uh, verse 32, chapter 5, verse 32. Now, you and I read this, and, and we kind of have, 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 have vision 2020, but we, we have hindsight of this. We have 2020 vision. We can look back on this truth and get it. But in that day, when Paul said these words, he says, This mystery is profound. Notice verse 32. This mystery is profound. The word mystery here, very interesting in the Greek, is the word mysterion, or, or where we get our word mystery, mysterion, and literally it's not just a secret that some insiders know. This word actually is a much deeper than that. It's the idea that this is a truth that no one knew before, that no one had any clue except for God. This wasn't just some esoteric knowledge that some insiders had ability to understand. You wouldn't have understood this. No one would have seen this coming. Paul here says there's a mystery that is now being revealed in marriage. And that mystery is Christ and the church. By the way, you ever had that in relationships? You ever had that in your marriage where you're maybe laying there at night and you're thinking, how did this happen? You ever feel like relationships are like a puzzle that you're putting together? Like this puzzle and you're trying to 
understand each other and trying to figure this thing out. If you're single, you're trying to seek the one and you're trying to figure out that puzzle. And can I tell you, there's a little bit of intentionality in that feeling. Why? Because Paul here says there's a mystery, this mystery of marriage that is now being revealed to what it really is a picture of. That is a picture of Christ and the church. This whole thing really isn't about you and I. It's about Christ and the church. So Paul here, to give us this, this understanding, actually goes back and ties this to the Old Testament. No, notice verse 31. He actually quotes from the very first chapter in the Bible. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Paul does is he connects the picture that he's about to reveal back to creation. That's our first point. We're going to make some observations. Number one, marriage is a reflection of God's purpose in creation. Marriage is a reflection of God's purpose in creation. Paul draws a line from what marriage looks like in the New Testament all the way back to creation. Now, I want to go back for a moment to give kind of some context to what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 1, we find the creation account. And it says this in the creation account. It says, then God said, Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God says, let us make man in our image. Notice it's plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make man the multifaceted nature of God. Let us make man in our image. So how does he do that? So it says God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, and then it says, male and female, he created them. You and I, in creation, are a part of the imago Dei, that's the word image of God. We reflect God's image. We are a mirror of who God is. Now, that doesn't mean we are God. We are but a reflection. We are a mirror of what God looks like. So, here's the picture. We give a visible picture of the invisible God. Or let me say it another way. We mirror in the visible realm what God is like in the invisible realm. We give a picture in history of who God is in eternity. That's the idea of being made in the image of God. You and I reflect this image of who God is. Now, the question is, how does this play out? How does this live out? Well, in chapter 2, by the way, I love Genesis 1 and 2 because Genesis 1 states it. Genesis 2 actually starts to fill it. Genesis 2 fills in the gaps of Genesis 1. It's a restatement of creation with some more information. And we find in Genesis 2 this description of how the imago Dei, the image of God, is played out. Genesis 2.18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God saw, this is not good. There's no one fit for Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Notice that. 
The first wedding we see is in Genesis chapter 2, and it's God bringing the woman to the man. He is giving the woman away. I love this because the Bible begins with a wedding, and in the end, there's a wedding. But that wedding is the ultimate consummation of what this wedding was meant to entail and picture. So, he brings the woman to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones. By the way, this is poetic in the Hebrew. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And if you've heard me preach before, you know this is true. He looked at the woman and he says, whoa, man. Or, by the way, this works in Hebrew. Right, the Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. What did he do? He looked at woman and he went, ah, yes. So here's the picture, right? By the way, notice a summary statement. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There it is, Ephesians chapter 5. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. So we get this image, right? Here's how the image of God works. God sees that man is alone. Adam is there naming the animals. There's a cow, there's a horse, there's a donkey, there's a goat, there's a sheep, there's a parrot, there's a seagull. He's naming the animals, but there's none that are comparable to him. And so God calls it a deep sleep, and he takes a rib from Adam, a rib. And, and as some scholars say, it wasn't from the foot where he would walk over or the head where she would rule over him. It was from the side where it would be closest to his heart. That sounds great. I don't know if that's the reason why or not. But he makes a woman. And he brings her to him in the first marriage that we see. And then he says, a father will leave, a, a husband will leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Here's the description. Here's the summary statement. We don't use the word cleave anymore, do we? It's kind of an archaic English word. We don't go around and say, hey, would you like to come over and let's cleave together? We don't say that. But the word cleave in the Hebrew is the word debak, which means literally to be stuck together, to be glued together, to, to be fit together. That's the idea. It's like a, a hammer and nail. It goes together. The, these things that connect. It's like a puzzle piece that, that, that fills each other. That's the image here. The image is husbands leave father and mother and they stick to their wives. And it says, they too shall be one flesh. They, their souls now are mingled. They're mingled in, in mind. They're mingled in emotion. They're mingled in body. They're now intimate together. And it says, and the man and wife were naked and not ashamed. Now we get to chapter 3. And you and I know what happens in chapter 3. We find the fall. The fall takes place. What we find in chapter 2 is that marriage is not a human invention. It's, div it's divine revelation. This was God's intention, that marriage is a part of God's work in creation. It is a picture of what God has done. By the way, a little side note, notice that God doesn't bring them together and make them the same. They're still diverse in who they are. They're different, but he brings them together in unifying purpose. Right? If, 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 if both are the same, then one's unnecessary. But they're different and unique, and God brings them together in purpose, in motivation. Now they're one flesh in focus. God works this. The father, the husband leaves father and mother and clings to his wife. Chapter 3, the fall happens. We find sin come on the scene. By the way, interesting, chapter 3, what is the first thing that Adam and Eve do when they sin? First thing they do is cover themselves. They cover their distinguishing parts all of a sudden they feel shame and guilt and they're overwhelmed with this picture of, of what marriage was meant to be was no longer the way it's going to happen. 
And now we find throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament hints at what marriage is all about. If you go and read the entire Old Testament, you're going to find over and over in these hints of what marriage is supposed to be about, a hint of what God intended in the beginning that had, that had fallen and broken apart in the fall that now God was bringing back in the reflection of himself. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. God calls Israel his bride. He calls his redeemed people his wife. Over and over we see this picture of him being a groom to people. We come to the New Testament and Jesus gives us even more hints. Remember when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, Luke 14, you've got to forsake father, mother, sister, brother, and even wife? What was he saying? He was redefining what marriage was really all about. By the way, he wasn't literally saying, walk away from your spouse to come follow me. He's saying it's going to cost you, though. There's a cost of following me. We come to Mark chapter 12, and there's a very interesting interchange. This interesting exchange between Jesus and a religious leader called the Sadducees. Uh, by the way, if you study New Testament history, you know there's a sects of Judaism. There are Pharisees and Sadducees and Essens and scribes and zealots. And the Sadducees are easy to remember because they did not believe in the resurrection. So they didn't believe anybody would resurrect again. And so they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's an easy to remember who they are. So notice Mark 12, it says this. It says, and the Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection. And that's why they're sad, you see. And they asked him a question. They said, teacher, so they're here. They're going to trick Jesus. They're trying to catch him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So this is called the law of the kinsman redeemer. If a, a husband and wife are together and the husband dies, the brother then goes and redeems they don't have a child. The, the brother then goes and redeems, or a close kin redeems the wife by giving a child for the deceased relative. So this is the way it was done in their culture. So uh, there's no child left behind. The man must then take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. So now they get to the story. There are seven brothers. The first one took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died and left no offspring. The third likewise, and the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now let me pause here. You read this and you almost get the feeling like a Mormon joke is coming. Some of you get that later. I thought that was funny, a Mormon joke. I'm sure they're laughing in Lexington because they get my jokes, I think. By the way, if you were the brothers, I would think if you're the seventh one, you would be like, I'm not... I'm not doing that. I mean, six of your brothers have died. Now, again, this is a made-up story. They're trying to trick Jesus. But notice where they go with this. So, she dies. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So what they're getting Jesus to do is deny the resurrection, deny that this is actually going to happen. So Jesus said to them, notice Jesus' answer. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus says, in eternity, there is no marriage. Now, I hear that. And i got to be honest with you. There's a bit of sadness that creeps up when I hear that. That Jesus is saying in heaven, this idea of marriage really isn't what this is about. This is all a picture, and Jesus here is revealing a hint of the mystery that Paul is going to reveal in Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus is saying, listen, this is not about your marriage. This is not about the family. Like, this is only a picture of something deeper. Now, I read this, and there's a little bit of sadness, and I start to think of heaven, and I think, 
am I going to see my wife Allison and I'm going to look at her in heaven and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe give her a wink, pop a little left dimple, hey babe, and she's going to know what I'm talking about? Is that what it's going to be like? I read this and there's a little bit of sadness. What does it mean that we're not going to have this relationship? Here's what I know. Here's what I know. What I know is this idea of the nuclear family, the, the husband and wife and children, does not exist in heaven. But with that, I also know that heaven is, our joys are not diminished at all, they're heightened in heaven, right? C.S. Lewis, by the way, he writes a, a great book called Miracles, and he talks about this reality. And in his book, Miracles, he describes this illustration of Mark chapter 12. And he says, I want you to think about it like a kid with a lollipop who's five, six, or seven years old. And you as a parent are describing to them what marriage is all about. And so you're describing them intimacy. You're describing them a passionate kiss. And they're five, six, or seven years old, and you give them a lollipop, and you're describing to them what a passionate kiss looks like, and they look at you and go, ooh, right? And you know full well, eventually, they're going to get to the point where they understand a passionate kiss. But for them, in that moment, five, six, or seven, they only care about that lollipop. That lollipop is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Marriage is weird to them. But a lollipop, that's everything. C.S. Lewis describes it that way. He, he says, here's what I know. When the pleasures of earthly things, like intimacy and married life and the nuclear family, the things we know, we only have a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. So if we know here how good it is, how awesome it is, imagine how heaven is going to be. Whatever God has for us there will be better than what he's had for us here. That means whatever it is like up there, there'll actually be a closeness that we cannot imagine here. A closeness that we cannot even grasp here. So Jesus says, this idea of family isn't meant to be eternal. There's something deeper. This idea of family in the home, in our present culture, it's not the way it's going to end. This is all meant to be a picture. Now, get this. Thousands of years before, God says, a man's going to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they should be one flesh. We come to Jesus, Jesus says, listen, in heaven, in the kingdom, there, there's no marriage. We're not given in a marriage. It's a different purpose. It's going to look differently. And then Paul comes in Ephesians chapter 5 and says, hey, here's the profound mystery. Marriage equals Christ and the church. It's like if you were getting married and you want an artist to paint a picture of you and your, your spouse, and they come and they sit down and they get the image in their mind and they begin to paint this picture. Now think about this. It begins with lines and blobs. It begins with color that doesn't make sense. And then all of a sudden, over time, over an hour or two, now all of a sudden the facial expressions begin to be seen. The outline of the body begins to be formed. The, the, the expression and detail of the eyes begin to take shape. And all of a sudden, after hours, you get a picture that now is very full and very beautiful. That's the image. In the beginning, God creates it. The fall distorts it. Now Jesus says, hey, there's going to be a day where marriage really isn't going to look the way it does here because it's not really about what it looks like right now. And then Paul writes, here's the mystery. This marriage, this thing is all about Christ and the church. It's all the image of what Christ has done to purchase the church. That leads to the second observation, which is this. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture of the gospel. That marriage is but a picture of the gospel. Now, I, I want to show you this. I, I want to show you this in this, this moment. Take a look at this text, Ephesians chapter 5. It gives us insight into how marriage is a picture of the gospel. Take a look. Notice verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to who? 
the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to who? To Christ. So also wives should submit to their husbands. Now pause here for a moment. So this idea of submission, wives, is not meant to be degrading. It's meant to be an image of how the church responds to Christ in belief, in, in, in excitement, in passion, in respect. Now think about this for a moment. You know, we live in a culture and a world, ladies, where the idea of submission is a bad word. Like in our culture of feminism, this idea of submission has taken a bad form. Like when we think of submission, we think of the MMA fighters that are fighting on Saturday night on ESPN. We, we think of, of people that are boxing, their submission holds, and these type of things, right? We think of a fight when we think of submission. But in the scripture, that's not the word. Or I always think of, of that joke. I don't know if you've heard this before, but uh, it was about a husband and wife who had to go to the doctors because the husband was gravely ill. And they went to the doctors, and, and the doctor decided to call in the wife to his office and leave the husband out in the waiting room and talk to the wife about some options. And so he called in the wife and said, hey, I want to talk about your husband. Here's the deal. Your husband is going to die. He's going to die, but you can, you can prolong his life if you do a few things for him. And what I want you to do is I want you to create a stress-free environment. He has to have a stress-free environment. If you want him to live, he's got to have a stress-free environment. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, when you wake up every morning, make him the best breakfast you can make him. When he comes home in the afternoon or evening, I want you to make sure he sits in that man chair and you put his feet up and you give him the remote and you let him watch whatever he wants to watch. And then you make him a home-cooked meal. Make him a home-cooked meal, one like no other. And then you massage his feet or his back or whatever he needs. You just give him the massage. And then later on, when he gives you that look, he's in the mood, you just take it. You go with it. Right? You give in because he needs this environment or, or he's going to die. She goes out into the waiting room. They then get in the car and the husband looks at his wife and says, Honey, what did the doctor tell you when you met with him? And she looks at her husband and she says, You're going to die. <laughs> that, that's the image that people get when they read this. Wives, submit to your husbands. That means you got to do everything they say. No, 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 no. Submission is relinquishing your right for the good of another. Submission is literally saying, I believe the best about you, and so therefore I'm going to support you and help you, and I'm going to enhance who you are. Right? The church does this with Christ. Right? We are a picture of who Christ is, and so as you submit, you're giving a picture of what marriage looks like in Christ. By the way, husbands, this doesn't go without saying to us. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Think about that for a moment, husbands, that we give ourselves in sacrifice. You know what Jesus did? He went to a cross for his church. Right? Think about the cross for a moment. Jesus on the cross didn't look down at the people and say, you guys are so beautiful, I can't help but to die for you. No, he looked at people in their ugliness. People denying him, people deriding him, people forsaking him. And he looked in the eyes of love and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't just say, I love you in your beauty. He said, I love you in your ugliest point, in your point of sin, overwhelmed with ungodliness. Husbands, we love our wives not in their beauty. We love our wives in their ugly state, in their worst state, when they seem to be going crazy and they don't have it all together sometimes. And that's not a, a description of any woman in here. I'm just being honest. And what happens, we are called as men to love them in spite of them. 
to lead them to sacrifice ourselves on the cross. He goes on and says, he says that we might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. By the way, I thought about this a, a few years ago, and I was very convicted about this uh, because I've been, I'm a driven kind of guy, and I, you know, I've gone after what God, I believe God has called us to, to do, and I realized that part of my job, notice Christ actually makes the church splendor, glory. Part of my job is also to enhance my wife's passions, my wife's giftings. It's to, to support her in that pursuit that she may have as she attempts to reflect Christ in her life. That part of this mutual support is also my submission to her to say, listen, I want to support you. I want to make you splendor and glorious. This is the picture of marriage. He says, you, you, husbands, love your wife like your own bodies. You nourish it and take care of it. You sacrifice for it. You, you make sure it looks good. Here's the point. The picture is that love is measured by how much, not that we want to receive, but how much we can give. That's the way love is measured. So he says this is the image. The image of Christ and the church is really the image of how we then live out marriage. That marriage paints the picture of what Christ has done for us. That, that the reference point that marriage is meant to give us a glimpse in. It's how we interact is all about how we view Jesus. Now, you know what that means? That, that means that marriage gives us the shape of the gospel. That marriage gives the shape of the gospel. By the way, if you're single, that means for you, marriage gives you the sufficiency of the gospel. What do I mean? Because guess what? You don't have to be married to reflect a relationship with Jesus Christ in love. You don't have to be married to reflect a relationship with Christ in submission. That you can be single and live out the marriage reflection. So if you're single here, guess what? You're actually giving the sufficiency of the gospel when you live a single life in purity and godliness. Uh, by the way, singles, I just want to read this verse to you because Paul said this. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He described it this way. He, he says this to the singles. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man... The single person is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And then he says this, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order. And then notice, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He says, here's the point, single your devotion can be solely on the Lord in this season of your life. You can paint a picture of what healthy marriage looks like by having your devotion tied to the one that marriage is all about. This whole thing, as you pull back the curtain of marriage, is all about Christ and the church. Now, I want to end with three observations. How do we do that? How do we give the picture of the gospel? How does marriage do this? First of all, marriage sanctifies. Marriage sanctifies. I want you to think about this. While marriage is many things, it's anything but sentimental. Marriage is not sentimental. Marriage is sanctifying. What do I mean? If you're married, you know this. Marriage is not easy. It's glorious, but it's hard. It's, it's burning joy and, and passionate strength, but it's also blood, sweat, and tears. There are humbling defeats in marriage, and there are exhausting victories in marriage. And marriage becomes a place where you and I live out our Christianity. Marriage becomes the place, the place of ground zero that reveals our sinful tendencies and also gives us spiritual development. Marriage is ground zero for our spiritual growth. 
It reveals who we really are, and it shows us the areas we need to grow in. Now, this is very contrary to the culture that we live in. Our culture will proclaim that marriage is all about finding the right person. Right? Find the right person, get married to them, and you will be happy. Find the right person, get them in the relationship, you'll then live a whole life. Your, your life will be whole, you'll feel, feel fulfilled. So we go on the hunt, don't we? We start with the hunt. We go after, wow, who can I find? Who's the right one? I gotta find Mr. Right. I gotta find Mrs. Right. This is what I'm looking for. They gotta look this way and they gotta have this tendency and I'm gonna find them. And then we find who we think is that one. Right, and all of a sudden, we, we, they're perfect. When you get together, music plays behind the scenes. You look at them and think there's nobody more beautiful, no more, nobody more stunning, nobody more handsome. And you think life will be complete. It's like the, it's like the movie you complete me. And you think this person is going to completely complete you, right? There's no arguments. And then you get married. And you get married, and what you thought was special about them isn't special about them. And what you thought was going to be perfect isn't perfect. All of a sudden, it's like sandpaper. The guy smells bad and is totally oblivious to your needs. And she's selfish and is a bit crazy at times. Again, I'm not talking about you ladies. I'm just generic. And then the habits that you thought were really cool and, and they were cute when you're, when you're first getting married all of a sudden become annoying. And then all of a sudden your passions and desires are out of sync. And then in marriage, this is how the world works, we come up with a great idea. Hey, we got to solve something. This thing isn't working out, so I have an idea. Let's have a baby. And we think, well, let's have a baby, let's solve this problem. And all of a sudden you have a child and you realize all it does is prove. Here's the point, here's the point I'm trying to make. You and I always marry the wrong person. We always marry the wrong person. Why? Because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. Marriage doesn't solve our issues. It exposes them. Marriage doesn't create problems. It reveals our problems. Marriage is the one that reveals our self-centeredness, our desire for self-fulfillment. By the way, this is true in our culture. We have a self-fulfillment ethic that says, go get yours and be happy. Well, guess what happens? You go get yours and all it does is show you're selfish. All it does is show really what's going on in the heart. That the issues are not people issues. The issue is a self issue. It's that I'm selfish in my heart. It's an individual issue that's now revealed in marriage. And can I tell you, we're not lonely people in need of soulmates. We're sinners in need of a savior. That's what marriage does. Marriage reminds us that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I'm in, I, I failed today, and, and i got to go to my wife and say, honey, I'm sorry, I, I should have responded. And what does it remind me? I need sanctification. I need what Christ brings me. I need him in my life. By the way, can I tell you, you want to make your marriage successful if you're married. If you're single, you want to have a good marriage one day. Here's, can I tell you the secret? When two people can say, my selfishness is the main problem of our marriage, you will have a successful marriage. When two people can come together and say, you know what the issue with my marriage is? It's not you. It's my selfishness. And when two people do that, it's amazing to think what marriage looks like. Why? Because it begins to reflect Christ. You realize the purpose is all about for In other words, I don't just, I'm not just in marriage to find the right person. I'm in marriage to become the right person. I'm in marriage to sanctify and to grow and to become what Christ wants to make me to be. That's what marriage entails. That's what it's about. We find that here. By the way, Notice a second observation here. Not only is marriage sanctifying, marriage focuses on the future promise of completeness. This is the second observation. Marriage, is, marriage focuses on the future promise of completeness. Notice the language. It says, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You know what marriage reminds us? Marriage remind us, reminds us that there is a day coming of completeness. That this person doesn't complete me, but God will complete me and marriage stirs that in us. You, you ever feel like you just, man, I just... I wish I could fix this. I wish I could get this right. Well, guess what? That's a stirring of eternity. It's a stirring that says there's a day coming where our faith will be sight and God will complete the work he began in us. And marriage reminds us of that journey. It reminds us of the journey that marriage is not the ultimate, but it's a sign and shadow of a higher reality. That's why this magnificent marriage analogy that we see in in, in this text is a reminder that Christ is not only continuing his work, but he's going to complete his work one day. He's going to complete the work that he began in us. And then lastly, marriage is a picture for the world to see. Marriage is a picture for the world to see Jesus Christ. So I want you to get this. If marriage is being degraded in culture, then people that begin to live out the picture of what real marriage looks like in Christ, it attracts culture. Can I tell you something that's true? I was thinking about this the other day. Do you realize that Christianity throughout history hasn't grown, Christianity hasn't expanded, hasn't been developed, hasn't continued, simply in spite of our differences with the world? Christianity hasn't grown in spite of our differences with the world. Christianity has grown because of the differences we have with the world. See the difference? When we live differently, when we reflect marriage differently, what happens? There's a world that's attracted to that, wondering what, how could they live that way? How can they love that way? How can they forgive that way? How can they respond that way? Marriage is a picture of what Christ has done for us. You know, I talk to people about marriage, I always remind them that marriage is not a microscope. Marriage is a telescope. What do I mean? Marriage, think about a microscope. A microscope takes small things, microscopic things, and make them reality. Marriage isn't about making our marriage be seen. Marriage is a telescope. It's about taking this grand, glorious truth that Jesus loves and he died and rose again. It's about taking the gospel and now it makes it a reality. It makes it in human form. It says, wow, you've got to believe in Jesus' love to live that way. And it brings the gospel to people that desperately need to see it. Let me ask you this morning, what picture are you painting in your marriage? Singles, let me ask you this morning, what picture are you painting of marriage and the way that you live in purity and godliness? Are you painting a grand masterpiece? Or are you painting a quiche? A small little frame. What is the picture that you're painting? There are some of you here this morning, maybe right now, your marriage is going through a difficult season. You feel like you're rubbing against each other like sandpaper. Listen, when you understand that marriage is not about you, it's not about your self-fulfillment, it's about Jesus, all of a sudden, it, it, it finds new breath. It finds new purpose. It finds a new season. And maybe for you, and men, I want to challenge you, maybe today you need to go to your wife and say, honey, we need to come together on this. We need to pray together. You know, by the way, I've done a lot of marriage counseling, and I have found that when couples have issues, almost, I've never found a couple that has an issue that they're praying together. By the way, prayer is the simplest thing we can do. 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds. 
By the way, prayer can be the most intimate thing. It can lead to great moments. Praying together, 30 seconds. Husbands, I want to challenge you. Take that wife in your arms and say, honey, can I pray for you? Every night, do it, every night. Create a habit, 60 seconds, 30 seconds, that's all it takes. Say, can we pray together? Maybe there's new habits you need to form to reflect Jesus more. Maybe you're here and you're single and, and you're not walking in a value of marriage. You're not walking in the truth, the reflection of marriage that you're painting as well. And today would be a day of stake in the sand to say, you know what, I need, I need to make some changes. I need to purify my life. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. Listen, this hole, when you, when you bring back the curtain and you stare behind the curtain, this marriage, this family, this portrait, we're just a picture. What's really going on is that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he died for you in your most ugly state, in your sin, in your wickedness, in your, in your God, ungodliness, and then he walked out of a grave to prove to you that what he offers is sufficient, and then he's willing to do a work in your life. He's willing to change you if you respond with faith, and maybe today would be that day where you respond by faith. I'm going to ask you to stand where you are in Lexington around would you stand as we pray. By the way, if you're here and you're walking through some difficult seasons in a marriage or you maybe you just want a refresher, we've got some great groups, some great groups planned this semester. Groups like You and Me Forever, Art of Marriage, our young adult married group, Prepared and Enrich. We have marriage groups that are ready for you. You can stop by the table and sign up. We'd love to get you connected with a marriage group that will encourage your journey together. If you're single, there, there's groups to, to help you along the way to reflect God, the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel in you. Would you bow with me? God, we want to thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you for marriage. Lord, marriage is a gift from you. But Lord, marriage isn't about us. Marriage is meant to be a reflection back to you of who you are to us. That you, the God of the universe, came to this earth and you died for us, not who are attractive, but we who abandon you. Not we who have it all together, but we who forsake you. You come and you die for us. And so God, as we live as a married couple, as we live as a single person, God, our reflection is of you. And so God, I want to pray this morning, I want to pray for every married couple here that God, you would strengthen their marriage in a world that is decaying the home, that is photoshopping their views. God, may we stand, may we have a stake in the sand that says we will build upon you, Christ. God, I pray for those who are single in a world that's saying, go get yours, go, go after that, make yourself happy, fulfill yourself. God, in a, a world of a self-fulfillment ethic, God, I pray that we would be different. And God, what we know in history is that the church has grown, Christianity has grown because we're different. So God, may we live differently. God, I pray for those maybe here this morning that do not know you. They have not put their faith in you, Jesus Christ, alone for their salvation. God, that today, it doesn't have to be hope so, maybe so, think so. It can be an absolute certainty in their life that you can save them, that you love them, that you can transform them, and you can promise a future hope and glory. So God, we give this moment to you. Work in our hearts. In your name, Jesus Christ, the one we build our lives on. In your name, amen. Let's sing this song to Christ as we end.